broadcasting in the high desert, 7,000 feet up, Taos, New Mexico, in the shadow of New Mexico's tallest peak, Wheeler Peak. This is RadioWilder.com, and we are on the air. Hi, I'm Harry. Most of you will know who I am, because I don't think at this time I've got a worldwide radio audience. The, the people that are listening are my friends, musician friends, uh, business acquaintances, family, poker buddies, et cetera, et cetera. But if some straggler happened to walk into RadioWilder.com, uh, you know who I am. So this, I'd like to uh, get to how this program, this podcast, this radio show ever even happened in the first place because it's bizarre. And, uh, and, I, and I just feel like explaining how it happened, not only for the audience, because this will be archived for future reference, but for myself. But before I do, I've got to thank the people that helped me. Um, otherwise, we'd have no broadcasts. And the most important and the one that helped the, the most uh, is my executive director, and that is Terry Anderson, who just happens to be my son-in-law, and I couldn't have a better one. And Terry not only can understand a musician's point of view and likes, likes music because he could play several instruments, and Terry had something that most young rock and rollers did not have that I played with or heard, and that is a very fine singing voice. On top of all that, you layer the fact in that Terry's a psycho, like a 22- or 25-year-old. He can blow them away with his tech knowledge and where he's at and understanding of the Internet. It's amazing. So certainly this program would have never got off the air without Terry. Uh, I'm opposite of him. I get by but not putting any radio show together. <laughs> That's for sure. So then right after that, I want to thank our creative team at Michael's Wilder, headed by our creative director, Mike Ryan, Mike's written copy for the best, and he gave me direction after he said, what are you trying to accomplish with this show? What is it? Uh, tell me some of your stories. And he said, well, you need to change the look of your site. It's real techie. I'd like to have it changed a little bit to reflect you and where you're going, and I'm going to write the copy for you. And he did a lot of that on his own time. And I remember he, he just said, hey, it's labor of love for me or something like that. I enjoy doing this versus writing copy for an assisted living company, waking up in the morning. So I said, okay, I buy that. Bob Duvall, the artist who created the logo and created uh, some, some other parts of the design, created the, I mean, he's just, he's the art guy behind a lot of the stuff that we do. Then Curtis Shaw's responsible for making sure projects are done on time. The cats are herded. So compliments to all. And we can't forget the legal department because nothing happens on earth without legal. And uh, so I want to thank Juana Mike. And that's in honor of his hunting prowess. And that's Mike Margrave, my lawyer and my dear friend from a long time. Now, there are other people that I need to thank, and certainly Marlene has been supportive in this endeavor, but I don't want to sound like one of those vapid Hollywooders thanking 19,000 people as they clutch an Oscar. I don't have an Oscar. I got Radio Wilder. So those are the people that helped bring this show forward and getting it on the air, which is not as easy as it sounds. I appreciate anybody who's out there listening. Hope you like it, so let's listen to some music.
That's a good way to open it up. Uh, a little something from 2002. Uh, it's electronic version, Thunderstruck, Blizzard Brothers. And the background of this thing is very simple. Music has been my lifelong pal, my friend. When I have nothing else in life, I always got music and always, always, every single time changed my mood. My earliest recollection of my uh, first interacting with music or feeling its power was my dad got us got me a turquoise transistor radio when we lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The transistor, what I do remember about it, I'd be listening and it'd start to fade and there would go the battery. Luckily, Pop kept me supplied in batteries, so I'd listen to it when I go to bed, I listen to it when I get up in the morning. And I found rock and roll and listened to rock and roll. So I do remember as far back, I tried to think, when did you hear your first song or when was it? I can't remember that. But what I do remember is turning it on one morning, I think it was a Saturday morning, and hearing about in the early morning hours that Buddy Holly had died in an airplane wreck. I had listened to Buddy Holly on the radio, liked Buddy Holly, so I can date that to 1959. So through the next, you know, two, three, four years, whatever, I would always listen. I went away to a school and plugged a lot of quarters in a jukebox. And finally, I think I was 13 or 14, one evening on the Ozzie Harriet show, they introduced their son, Ricky Nelson. And that's the first time he'd been on that show. And he did two songs with his band in the background. And here's this young, good-looking guy singing great, playing guitar, and he had four or five girls at his knee, and I guess they called them the poodle skirts in those days. And I thought, wow, this guy's playing the music that I love. I've heard, I heard him, of course, on the radio. And it, at that moment, I said I had, begin to get, had begun to get interested in the girls, and I thought, wow, I, need to, I want to be a musician. So I had no... My, I had no desire to be a guitar player for some crazy reason. All I wanted to do was play the drums. The drums came into my mind, I'm going to play drums. So, oh, I'd say a year or two later, we moved to El Paso, Texas, lived on the west side, uh, went, I guess I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, went to a high school for one year, understanding and knowing that a high school closer to my house was going to be built and we were going to move there. And uh, so when we got shipped back up to the other high school, I met my lifelong friend and fellow musician, Ty Grimes. Ty was learning how to play the drums. His brother, Gaylord Grimes, great guy and really wonderful drummer, was already playing drums. In fact, he was playing at some different times for Bobby Fuller, who was El Paso's famous band, most famous band and had the number two hit in the United States in 65, I think it was, I Fought the Law, and was on his way to Hollywood to become a big star, and he was murdered in Hollywood, and that was that. But back to Ty, Ty and I, then I started to play, the, you know, started thinking more and more about the drums. I wanted to do it. I didn't have any. And right at that period of time, I was transferred to the east side of town to a little school called Parkland High School. Brand new, couple years open, and it was probably mostly made up of military kids. It was a good group to hang out with, and transfer isn't the right word exactly. My parents got a divorce, so I lived with my dad. He owned a radio station, KGY, Western Station, on that side of town, so that's where we lived. About the second or third day I was at Parkland, I became friends with a, a guy named Paul Feaster. 
And after noodling around a little bit, he told me he wanted to be a musician and he wanted to play guitar and I wanted to play drums. And so he got a silver tone guitar, which is a Sears product. And I went down to the local pawn shop, spent 90 or 100 bucks for a blue sparkle three-piece set, had a cheap cymbal, uh, a cheap small cymbal, a little hi-hat. And we began to make noise in his bedroom. Well, obviously, nobody came around. We scared them all off. And if it had been a regular set of parents, they'd have probably kicked us out. But because Paul's dad came home late and I had a kind of a free run, my dad was always working to get over there. We'd get practice in. Uh, we just kept playing away. Um, obviously, no singing, two of us, just instrumental stuff <clears throat> and learning our instruments. And I can feel and still see the first moment of what I'd call something positive. And that was when Paul's younger brother came to the door, bedroom door. And instead of looking in and then taking off, he actually stayed and listened to what we were doing. So I thought, well, must not be too bad then. And uh, about that time, somebody, one of the other people at school heard we were playing. And uh, Mariano Acosta an older guy in our school, very nice guy, great guy. He wanted to be in a band. So uh, we needed a bass player. So Paul said, well, great, we'll get another six-string guitar. I'll take two strings off. You're now a bass player. So then in, in addition, a little short period after that, I don't remember exactly when, David Canopla, another good friend of ours, joined the band. And people started to come by now and then, listen to us, and we had a little band. During this show, what we're going to do is, uh, it'll be all over the place, because that's how I like music. So who knows where you're going to go and what you're going to hear. But again, we got stuff from the 50s and we got stuff from yesterday. So they'll just kind of flow in however they flow. So the next thing we're going to go is pop back to what I think is the greatest decade of rock and roll, back into the 60s and little, little Listen to a little something from a band I know you've heard before. I've got something to say that might cause you pain. If I catch you talking to that boy again, I'm gonna let you down and leave you flat. Because I told you before, oh, you can't do that. Tell you one more time, I think it's a sin. I think I let you down. 
As a 16-year-old rock and roll drummer, uh, learning my Green Onions and all the little songs that we played at that time, when the British invasion hit, it was a complete knockout to all of us. You couldn't wait to hear the next song on the radio. And for me, there is always going to be only one of the one great band, and that's the Beatles. I love all music, but they're the champs as far as I'm concerned. We didn't play a lot of Beatles stuff. Nobody really took them on because it was a little too difficult to copy them, and and uh, it, it so uh, they had their own little space where we all played everything else but the Beatles. So the first debut, if you will, happened at the first sock hop at Parkland High School. And our band, well, we were the only band, but we were, everybody was all excited to have us. We had a big crowd there. So at 3.30 in the afternoon, we set up our stuff. I can still remember the perspiration dripping down my arms. Like, I was pretty nervous because all of a sudden we're out of Paul's bedroom, out of the cage, and out in front of the fans. So we had an hour to play, and Chris, the, my daughter's mom, and the woman I married, who I'm very close with to this day, and who ultimately, when we got married, was right in the middle of me being a rock and roll drummer, she reminded me a year or two ago, it was funny, she said, do you remember that I had to get up in the middle of that sock up and hold your cymbal up? because it kept falling down, and I didn't remember that in the glow of the beautiful performance. And uh, so we did our hour. We were all excited then, and I guess if we'd have been in Paul's bedroom and we had never would have gone past Dave looking at us and some people coming over, I can speak for myself. I'm not sure how much further I would have gone. I don't know. But all it took was that sock hop for me to say, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to play drums. The next, the next song I'm going to do is uh, goes out to a friend of mine who's my life, will be my lifelong friend and my poker buddy, Robbie Sampson. Robbie loves the Kansas, the next group. And so we're going to send this on out to Robbie and uh, hope you enjoy it. This is something that's from the 90s.
Cheap, cheap trick is still out there. They just put out an album either early this year or end of last year. They're still out there doing it. And some of the old guys can still take care of business out on the road. And I guess they've created and carved out a little what I like to call the casino tour. And uh, some of them are still very, very good. And Cheap Trick is one of them. So uh, over the next couple of years, bandmates changed. Paul and I stayed together for a couple more years. Different band members came in, as I said, and the band became better. And we started doing other stuff and singing came into place. And I got a much better set of drums and he got better guitar, better amp, better equipment, all of it. And then... Paul went off, and or I went off to another high school for my senior year. I was invited by our principal at Parkland to find another school. We'll leave those stories for later. I guess he didn't appreciate what a good student he had in me. So I went over to uh, Irvin. By then, our band was playing all the time. Had a good band. A pretty, you know, we we had a pretty good following. And so over the next six, seven years. Uh, I played in probably a grand total of five or six bands, probably encompassing two names. Uh, the Pigtown Lords was our first band, and that was I took that out of a New York gang book. And then we were Sonny Farrow and the Resurrection. And I'll talk a little bit about Sonny and that band later. But as we as we played and we're getting paid to play for a living, I went up to school, but then I started college. But I said, I just got to keep playing. And so uh, I played, I'd say, another, I can't remember, another couple of years. And then I, I, I was married, and my dad wanted me to go back to school. And I said, okay. I had great time playing, loved it. And that was that. You know, we had part-time jobs, you know, part jobs. We might play three times in one week and none for, for two next little tune I'm going to go to resonates with me because it's from the 50s from Buddy Holly. And when I think back to that little green transistor radio in Albuquerque, New Mexico, laying in my bed and playing it and just constantly trying to replace the battery on those little things, I remember the morning that I heard about the crash that killed uh, Buddy Holly. And he was one of the masters, one of the originals. This is from Buddy Holly. Close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. Mm -hmm. Words of love you whisper soft and true. Darling, I love you.
let me hear you say the words I want to hear. Darling, when you're near. Mm -hmm. Words of love, you whisper soft and true. From those days, everything original, one of the very first to demand and uh, would not accept anything other than complete control of the studio. He'd do it his way, how he wanted to do it. And to this day, I believe that his widow is still receiving royalties because of the way that he set it up. So I went back to school. And I wasn't back and I was running camera at my dad's television station doing a little bit of directing. And it wasn't more than a month after I was back in school that I got a call from Robin Vinikoff. Uh, Robin owned what was called the Vox Music Box. And Vox was a big amp in those days. I think the Beatles played Voxes for a while. And Robin called me and said, hey, Sonny Farlow's in town. We all knew who Sonny was. He was in California and his, he, he always would put up pick up bands, road bands and stuff. And he was a fixture when he was in El Paso, but then he outgrew El Paso and went on the road. He's putting together a band to go on the road, and I told him about you. I said, hey, Robin, I'm retired. I don't play. I'm back to school, uh, working down at the station. And he, and he said, well, I'd love to have you come down and audition. People are doing auditions for a week. And I went, I can't do it. So it took about mm, eight hours, and I realized, all right, I'll try. What have I got to lose? Uh, I didn't. I never was negative about I'm not going to get the job, but I probably didn't think I was good enough to play with Sonny. So I said, okay. So I go down on Saturday, and the group that was auditioning that day, the people were Terry Wesnack and Bill Carrick, good buddy. They were pals, best pals. Me, I didn't know any of them, and Sonny. So we did. We fit together pretty well in the audition, if you will. And, you know, shook hands and said, see you later. And I didn't think one thing of it or not. And two days later, Robin called me and said, uh, Sonny wants you to be his drummer. And you guys are going to, there's a, his, his manager's got a kind of a first gig for you in about a month or five weeks or six weeks, whenever it was. And you'll be uh, up playing up in Clovis, New Mexico. So fast forward all that. I made everybody unhappy, my dad, Chrissy, and everybody else. I was now playing with Sonny Farrell, which was awesome. Became good pals with Bill and Terry. And through the years, uh, that band changed. Bill and I always stayed in it. Terry went his own, mine his own, and did other things playing out in California. And uh, our, that band morphed into a very, very good band. And I can say it, not because of me, but basically because of the five of us playing together. There were three all-stars. Sonny was an awesome guitar player, an even better singer, played good harp, and at 350 pounds, he had great stage presence. Uh, Tommy Jordan was a classically trained organist. He had a giant Hammond B3 organ, Leslie Speakers. Also, for those of the, how you guys can relate to that is 
like when you used to have a big wooden piece of furniture that was your stereo. Well, they had these big wooden boxes with speakers that revolved, and it made he had a tremendous sound. And the third member of the trio was the best bass player I ever played with, Bobby Sotelo. And he's the best I ever saw, and most people think he's as good as anybody, and I'm talking about my musician pals in California, that they ever played with. And Bobby helped me. We developed a great synergy. He helped me with stuff. He taught me things about how the bass and the drums need to really have a powerful bottom end so the rest of the band can live off of us. So our band got really good. And we got to the point where we had to turn jobs away. And we were then approached to go to California on our own tour, got booked. And we were, I was very excited. And at that point, I got to tell you, I thought I'm a musician for as long as it takes because our band was good. And Bill Carrick was uh, my still my lifelong pal. Bill was a rhythm guitar player. And he and I filled important spots on the team. We didn't lead the team. He was a very fine backup singer, played good, solid fill-in rhythm guitar. I did my part, and it just worked. There was three all-stars, and Bill and I held our own and did our stuff, and we fit in as a band. Well, uh, we had the tour lined up to go to California, and for their own personal reasons, Bill and Bobby were just unable to go with the band to California to commit. So Sonny got his brother to play bass guitar in California with us. But as soon as we got out there, we followed Sly and the Family Stone into a club in Santa Rosa. In fact, every single break was Sly and the Family Stone. As soon as we got out there, it didn't take but a couple practices, and then we were out to play. I thought, this, our band is no good. It's, it's nothing compared to the band I had. So we played... I played probably about five or six weeks with them out there. We played in San Jose. We played in uh, Santa Rosa. We played in Jack London Square in Oakland. You know, we met, we made money. But one night I was coming home from San Francisco, to San Francisco about five in the morning, and I was I had an old refurbished U-Haul trailer. We had it painted yellow, and I took all the band equipment. I had a Jeep. Obviously, my drums were in there and everything else, and I just thought, the band, there's no future. This band's not good, and... I'm out of here. I'm going to go back to school. And I loved the three or four years I was with Sonny. And at one time, I realized what great music could be and was lucky to have that couple of years with the guys, with Bill and Bobby and the rest of us. And so I went to Green Street in San Francisco to a music store the next day, told them I was out, sold my drums for a very low price, let's put it that way. And so that was the end of my professional music musician career. And Next little tune is a little more personal. Uh, when I met Marlene, we were, uh, uh, I'd, I'd love to call us kids, because well, we became kids at uh, 47 years old, but as a teenager or as a kid, you used to have songs you had with your girlfriend, and uh, we had that, and we would call each other and play one of them as we uh, enjoyed the start of our relationship. So this group was one of our favorites, and uh, uh, this song, I think, is from the 90s, but pretty good group, pretty powerful, and we love their stuff.
of Soul is who that was. Cool stuff. Uh, it reminds me of the early Corton days with Marlene and I, but they're powerhouse. They've got some good, good music going on. And as we move forward from there, I then uh, took a bit. What, of course, I always had a musical collection, whether it's cassette, CD, or whatever. But a strange turn of events happened when I was actually playing poker. I was at a poker event, big tournament event in Reno, and there was this little Vietnamese player who, who right now today is one of the best players in the world. And he had this little rectangular box in front of him, and he had buds go into his ears, and it was so small. I, I couldn't help but ask him at, at the break. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's a new thing from Apple computers. It's called an iPod, and you can hold 10,000 songs, and it's this and that. And immediately you know, knew I wanted one, so I called my IT guy at the company and said, I need one. And they had a special going on, and they, in, they engraved my name on it. Marlene still has it. I gave it to her. We don't play with it, but it's the very first generation of an iPod. And I loved it and loved playing poker with it. It's easy in front of you. you I immediately downloaded all my CDs, all my musical library, which was quite extensive at the time, and enjoyed it. Well, in 2000, right around 2007, series of work events and more importantly my upcoming marriage I said I'm going to go to the series and play not in the main event because I'm going to get married when the main event is on but I'm going to play one more event I, I did well in the event cash and that's the last time I was at the series I'd played five or six in a row and done main events and won my way in a couple times and cashed so I was, I was pretty pleased with that and uh so at, at that particular time, that was the end of my pod, except that it powered my home stereo system. We had just gotten a new, bought a new home and had all kinds of different stereo equipment. And I had a, a docking station for the pod and it fueled my music, which was great. Well, then not shortly after that, the iPhone, i.e. iPad came out. I got one of those and began to continue my collection, not on the pod, but on, on something that could be Bluetooth and I could have more flexibility with. Well, one day I realized, you've put six, 700 more songs on this thing, so you and I can't use it with my stereo system, the, the one with six or 700 more songs, so I called two of my music guys who are stereo masters and can do anything. They've done Randy Johnson's house and all kinds of stuff stereo or music or equipment, you name it, they can do it with help from their pal, Jeremy, and their names are Mike and Dan. Uh, I said, do I need new equipment? I got to be able to use my iPad that has 700 more songs on it. And they said, nope, buy Apple TV and you'll be able to do it. Well, they installed it and it wouldn't run my auxiliary set of speakers. So they found one other piece of equipment, cost me a hundred bucks, and that did it. So then I was able to have a bigger, fuller library, sounding better. I could, I could take the songs I recorded on the road. And the next thing we're going to roll into is one of the fine, younger, newer guitar players. Everybody pretty much knows who he is right now, Jack White. He's done the White Stripes, Rockin' Tours, uh, who knows, several others. He's done some duets with several people. And 
he did a was in a documentary and I think it's called It Could Get Loud or It Could Get Louder and it's Edge from U2 uh, Jimmy Page and Jack White. It's really cool. The three great lead guitar players talking about how they started and what they did and everything. So if you get an opportunity, that's a really good uh, DVD to pick up. So let's listen to Jack a little bit and he'll rock it for you.
different doing this. I'm not sure if I should babble or say nothing or whatever, because I kind of felt like saying, hey, it's time for a little drummer music. And I thought, well, we'll just figure it all out. And I realized I did have wanting to say something to say. A couple of years, a year or two, whatever it was, I'm not sure. But my daughter and I were up here in Taos, and I had my old computer up here, but I'd figure out... I kept looking at these playlists, didn't know what they meant. And I finally figured out how to make one or do one. And I did a little play one with three or four songs to see if it worked. So we were sitting around one afternoon. I said, how about doing a playlist? We've got about 300 tunes on here. That's all. But let's let's pick out 25 or 30 of them. You pick half, I'll pick half. And we'll put together a father-daughter playlist. That's what we titled it. So we did it. And we'll have some of the songs during some of these future programs coming up. I'll uh, reference that playlist because it was important to me and it was fun that we did it. And so once I found playlists, that was like Pandora's box to me. I thought playlist for this mood, playlist when, I, playlist when I'm having a burrito, playlist when it's raining, I don't care. I want oldies, newies, maybe I want hard rock, may, maybe I want the sweet singing stars of the 50s and 60s. It's just, it, it, it just made it beautiful for me. And, of course, in the meantime, I kept accumulating music, listening to music. And for the last 10 or 11 years, I've been listening to a station called The Underground Garage, Channel 21 on Sirius. And it's basically all rock and roll from the 50s to 50 minutes ago is what they say. I think that's their tagline, and which is basically what my whole inventory has been. It's from the early 50s all the way up to yesterday or today. In fact, I've got a couple of tunes right now that haven't even been out on the market for a month from now. I always appreciated all kinds of music. I still favor the British invasion in the 60s because it was of my age and it got me interested in playing music and because I still think uh, it's, it's the greatest period of time. But there are other good music segments and times. And in this... 65 years of rock, if you will, that I have. I have a lot, most everybody at some time or another, but there are people I don't have. I don't have a Neil Diamond. There's no Cherry Cherry coming, not because I don't respect Neil or anybody who sang and played to me are the best. They're not dancers. They're the people that produce the music. So, or Elvis, I think I have one on a double play, but that... You know, it's got it's my stuff. I got to live with it. So that's how it goes. Well, the final piece of the music was about three years ago. I was listening to the garage, and I listen to other stations too, and have other sources. And because my daughter is only 19 years uh, different in age between Chris and myself, she liked our music, then she likes her music, and then the other. So I get good recommendations from her and some other friends of mine, and I'll listen to it. And she's added a lot to what we do. And but I was driving home from a party in Tucson and I heard they added a new thing called uh, double take, which is basically a cover or double play of a song. And I heard a couple and I thought, man, that's pretty good. So I started playing around with that myself with Terry up here on vacation and I just took off for me. And then I got in a I just started to go kind of psycho about it. So for the last three years, I've been looking for great covers, obscure covers, but they all have to be one thing in common. They got to be good ones just because you covered. Can you imagine how many people covered the Beatles? That's not good enough. So I cherish the list. I've got several hundred of them right now, and they certainly are going to be part of this program. And uh, you'll hear plenty of it 
as they go on. Back to the 60s, uh, my uh, mother and my daughter, Chrissy, uh, was very very impressed with Mr. Dave Clark. He was the handsomest, and he played some good drums, and he had a good group. So in honor of her, I'm going to go ahead and uh, play a little Dave Clark from the 60s. days when you were the drummer uh, and you had to sing back up or lead or whatever you didn't have the great tech stuff that we did today that you do today uh, I know I had a mic in front of me not because of my beautiful singing because uh, we had to do in some of my bands a little backup but that microphone would shake and so the fact that Dave Clark did such a great job as the lead vocalist for Dave Clark and played good drums is uh, it's a lot harder than it seems so let's move over into the 80s
So that kind of brings us up to date with the music, except for one last piece. Many of my friends, several of my friends, and other people that came over through the years would say, they'd remark, hey, I really like that music, and basically, or where did that station come from, or what, and it, it would be basically my whole inventory on shuffle. So who knows what it would play that night, but I heard enough of that to think, well, hey, my music, again, it's not anything great about me, it's 65 years of rock, so it resonates with people. Well, last October, Bill Carrick, my lead guitar player, rhythm guitar player came to hang out with me. We were going to go see the Congos, one of my favorite groups. And we came home and he remarked something. It was either that trip or the trip before about where did that music, what is that music? What's that source? And I said, well, it's my stuff. It's my play, you know, it's, it's my inventory of music. Well, I really like it. So I kind of got the bug roughly a year ago to say, I'm going to have my, do myself a, a podcast. But then after a while, I said, wait a minute, you know, this is fairly intimidating. I don't know how to do it. I don't have the tech background. It's, you know, it's not quite as easy as you think it is getting everything together and the microphones and the audio and where do you go and, and the platform for your podcast and the rest of that stuff. So uh, I kind of, it kind of went to sleep on its own. Well, it didn't take 60 days later for it to wake back up again because my daughter brought me a book and the book was... Uh, it was empty, and she said, this book will help you write your life story, and I think you should. It's very interesting. It's just not, not just because you're my dad. So I looked at her, I said, well, you think this is my last year on the planet? You think I'm going under? Why do you want me to write the book? No, i just like you to have it. And I said, honey, I don't want to write a book. I write all the time. I write ads. I write copy. I write blogs. Write, 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 or look at writing. And I'm just not, you know, I just don't want to do it. Well, it was... But, okay, so that's one person. I had somebody else say earlier on the same thing, one or two people. But two months before, I was at my doc's office. Her name is Dr. Connie Mariano, and she's had uh, two books published. And she said, you ought to write a book. Your, your life is very interesting. And I was very comfortable telling her about my life. And as we talked, we had a good rapport. So we put that together, and I told her basically the same thing. I thought, you know what? I'm thinking about this podcast, and I don't want to write a book, so how about if I do a radio show or a podcast that combines the music, which will stand on its own, because it's basically all rock and roll, excluding, as I said, some, and I can tell stories, because I can do that fairly easily, that part. Now, it's not easy to put it all together, but I decided to do it, so... Again, the people that I thanked helped me get to this particular point. And so I think that uh, I'm going to get better at this. I'm not a professional. I'm not a jock. I'm not a music spinner. But I think you'll hopefully you'll like the stories. I'll have a lot of them, and most of them are true. And my, uh, my aim is to share the music with everybody, tell the stories, and at the same time, uh, there, there basically is my my music book that'll uh, take care of both those things that I want to accomplish. So you'll be lucky to know or happy to know this will be the last time you hear me babble for five or six minutes. But I wanted everybody who listens to know or when this show's archived to know how this thing started and what it means. And it is important to me to to say how it happened because it's just life. And again, music never leaves me, and I never thought I'd be in this position 
but I'm happy to be in it. So enough of the talk. Let's get down to playing the kind of music that I think you're really going to enjoy and appreciate. It's not going to be um, set in stone. It'll be all over the place. And I'm going to get to a point when I improve about, well, next week we'll do this or whatever, or however, give you a little warning. And I'm going to try to do a show every Friday, 4 or 5 o'clock. And if it takes off, if people like it, then I'll either do probably an hour-long show. But if people like it, I'll either lengthen the show or do another show so I have two a week. We'll just see how that goes. But right now, tune in, enjoy it, and let's listen to Radio Wilder. Well, we're going to get near the end of the first program, and I'm going to end it with a song that kind of epitomized what I think of music. Not only has it been the one all-time lifetime companion for me, I've been lucky enough uh, with wonderful people surrounding me and a little bit of luck here and there to have accomplished a lot in my life, and I've gotten to do some cool things. I've played poker ever since I was a kid, and at some time during my life, I wanted to see if I was good enough to earn my way up into the World Series of Poker, and after three long, hard years, I was able to do that, made it on television, was on ESPN, have cashed at the World Series, and uh, a pretty great high, great high with businesses, etc. But the best and greatest feeling I've ever had in my life was playing and being up on stage and playing with my bandmates and sitting in with other bands or other bands sitting with me. And to this day, I absolutely love music. It can change my mood in at any time so I want to honor it with this so let's go out with the very first uh, again my very first music book show let's finish it off Radio Wilder with something that really is a rock and roll fantasy for me
This is Radio Wilder. Radio Wilder.